Thanks be to God, and thank you, Kara, for reading a beautiful passage for us this morning. If you don't have your Bibles open already, as if you were already following along with Kara, if you don't have them open, Ephesians 2, I invite you to find that with me, where we'll spend our time this morning. You hear a lot of talk of hostility in that passage and peace. And I don't know what you think of when you hear the word hostility, but I've lived in the greater Philadelphia region long enough and been a sports fan long enough that when I think of hostility, I think of this past Monday night. If you're not a football fan, it was Eagles-Cowboys week, which is like beat Dallas week, that's what we call it. And it's this sense when these two rivals play and there's deep hostility between these two fan bases that every time these teams play, everyone in this area, at least who is a an Eagles fan, rallies together. There is this deep sense of oneness, of unity against this common enemy, right? Except for those few of you that are Texas transplants. Jim's shaking his head at me over here. We love you all. But there's this sense of oneness. Everybody has shirts that say, beat Dallas. The number of conversations in the area that end with, go birds, beat Dallas. The number of bars and pubs that are just filled with people that are rallying around this one common thing. If it's a home game, everyone, you know, makes the pilgrimage to the sanctuary. I mean the stadium. That's a different sermon. We'll leave that alone. And they go to be a part of this because it brings everyone together in the area. It has this common thing until this past Monday night, about halfway through the maybe first quarter, if you watch the game and you realize this is not going to be pretty, then all of a sudden, all those things that brought us together, they were gone, right? So you start realizing the Eagles are going to lay an egg and we're in trouble. Now that unity is now not just at risk, it's destroyed. And if you don't believe me, just try to get out of a parking lot after one of those games, right? You know that unity is not strong enough. There is no real oneness, because when you rally around a team or a cause, that brings temporary peace to a small group of people, but it's not actually strong enough to hold. And so we find ourselves looking for something else that will bring peace, something else that will bring unity, that will remove hostility. So we look for something greater and stronger. About a month ago, we celebrated, we remembered, probably a better term, the 20th anniversary of the terrorist attacks on September 11th. In the years after that, a woman named Elizabeth Gray wrote a poem that has since gone viral, at least online. I'm probably sure, I'm sure you've probably heard something about it. It says, it's called this, I missed 9-12. I missed 9-12. I would never want another 9-11, but I missed the America of 9-12. Stores ran out of flags to sell because they were being flown everywhere. People were Americans before they were upper, lower class, Jewish, Christian, Republican, Democrat. We hugged people without caring if they ate Chick-fil-A or wore Nikes. On 9-12, what mattered more to us was what united us, not divided us. That's her poem. She's appealing to something stronger than the tribalism of our sports teams. She's appealing to American patriotism. And she's acknowledging there was a sense of unity that that brought. But what are we, 20 years past? Did it even take 20 years for it to show that that's not strong enough either? 
Is there a single issue that we can talk about as people that doesn't end in some sort of sharp division where our disagreement isn't just disagreement, but now it's, now it's personal? Do I need to list any of these? This is our life, right? Vaccines, you're welcome. <laughs> Masks and schools and COVID protocols. Voting for government, politics, racial tension and reconciliation, things like wokeness and critical race theory. It's not just our country, it's in our church. You see, no sports team is strong enough to bring real unity and oneness. No sports team, no cause, no soapbox you want to get on is strong enough to bring unity and oneness and get rid of hostility. No American patriotism is strong enough to bring an end to hostility and bring true unity and oneness. You need something stronger. Something that doesn't just change a surface piece of who we are, but deep down changes who we are. Changes our very foundation of our identity. And the good news is that's exactly what this passage says Jesus has already brought. We'll work our way through this passage again, but I want you to notice something. There is one command in this passage, and it has nothing to do with make unity happen. It has nothing to do with get along. That's not there. The one command we'll see in a little bit is the word remember. We don't have to work to make unity. Jesus says, I've already made it. And church, it's about time we start to live into that. Here's, the, here's what this passage is going to show us, and I'm just going to tell you right up front. Here's what Paul is saying to the church in Ephesus and to the church at Shelton and the church around the world. If you have been reconciled to God by grace through faith, then you are reconciled to one another. I'm going to say it again. If you have been reconciled to God, then you already are reconciled to one another. There is unity. There is peace. It's already there. Last week, Pastor Jen walked us through the first 10 verses of Ephesians chapter 2. And if it helps to give some direction to this, that passage was all about vertical. Here's who you were before God. You were dead in your sins. You were enslaved like an animal to the passions and the instincts of your flesh. You were, you were being swept down current by this system, this world that has no interest in God. That's where you were. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for you, made you alive. You were dead. You were his enemy. But now you've been reconciled to God. How? By grace not by a lick of your own effort, but by grace, simply receiving that by faith. You're now a totally new person before him. You've been born again, given new life. You're not the same. Vertical. And this passage is going to turn and say, if that is true, then that reshapes every bit of your horizontal relationships. Every bit of it. 
If you have been reconciled to God, then you are already reconciled to each other. As you heard Kara read this passage for us, or maybe as you're looking at it in front of you, it is a long, dense, rich passage that has about a million rabbit holes, theological trails, that, hyperlinks that we could just click and just go a million places. But I want us this morning to just pull that one thread out. Say, God, if you have done this, how does this shape the way I interact with people around me? To do so, we're going to have to do a lot of work. You're going to you're gonna have to work mentally with me here. Because as Paul goes to show you that this is true, as he works his argument out to prove it, he doesn't use the examples that are common to us, right? Paul didn't write this last week. He wrote this 2,000 years ago. And to, to help us understand how we are now reconciled horizontally, he uses an issue that was the hot-button issue in Ephesus, in fact, in Corinth, in Rome, in every major city at the early church. Every one of his letters comes to, at least at some level, this idea of being reconciled Jew and Gentile. I highly doubt any of you had a conversation with your community group this week about the conversation between Jew and Gentile, right? You probably talked about some of these other things I've already mentioned. There's a lot of tension, a lot of, a lot of hostility, and not a, not a whole lot of peace. But he goes to the topic of Jew and Gentile. So we have to do a little work to try to understand. To give us some framework, we have to kind of back our minds up all the way to the book of Genesis. Because the very first promise that God gives, as soon as humanity sins, he said, hey, I've already made a way. I am going to bring a Messiah, the promised one, a deliverer who is going to come, who's going to make all things right, renew and restore this relationship to me, and renew and restore all that is broken as a result of that fractured relationship. And so God begins to work a purpose. He works his plan for his purposes to restore, the, to restore us to himself. And as he does, to bring this Messiah, this promised one, out of all the families of the earth, who does he choose? He says, I'm going to work through you, Abraham. Abraham's kind of a nobody. God, again, by grace, says, I'm going to work through you. And he says to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples, all nations on earth will be blessed through you. You see, the goal was never just that Israel would receive the blessing of God and, and keep it to themselves. It's actually that they would be a conduit for the entire world, all the nations, to experience what it's like to be with God. And so as God begins to work and fulfill his promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation, he does so. And Israel becomes this huge nation that is actually enslaved in Egypt. And God brings Israel out of slavery and begins to reveal himself to them. And there's some things that start to set apart the nation of Israel from all the other nations. Gentiles. You're familiar with that term? If you're not Jewish people, Gentiles is all the rest. That's probably, I'm going to guess, a large, large majority of us in this room. Not Jewish by birth. There's three primary things that begin to set apart the nation of Israel from other things. One is their relationship to God. They are called to be a kingdom of priests mediating God's grace and his love into the world, demonstrating what it's like to be with God. They are given the promises 
They are the ones who receive the blessings, the covenants that are in order and are intended to bless the world. They had the temple. The Messiah was coming through them. They were mediating between God and the world. There was also a mark, the mark of circumcision. You heard it in the beginning verses of our passage this morning. Circumcision was a mark by which the men of Israel had their foreskin removed of their male reproductive organ that was a sign to them that said, you are set apart unto God. You are different. You are my priests. And the third thing was this law. They were given a very distinct law. Some of the laws were, were civil. Here's how you interact with one another. Here's how you rule over judicial issues. Some were moral. Some were ceremonial. that showed how we relate in a more religious, formal sense to God, how we come to Him, how we approach Him. But all of them, the law as a whole, marked them off as distinct and separate from the rest of the nations. But again, I want you to hear what Moses says to Israel is the purpose of this law and their obedience. He says, see, I have taught you, Deuteronomy chapter 4, he says, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about these decrees and say, surely this great nation is wise in understanding. Just like the promise to Abraham, the law, circumcision, all of these things were not simply meant to be a whew, feeling good about myself thing, I'm special, but meant to mark them off as the priests, as the messengers of hope, of God's grace to the entire world, all of the nations. But as time goes on, as mankind continues to, humans begin to put more and more on the laws. By the way, this is one of the reasons why Jesus gets so hot at the teachers of the law. He says, you're not trying to help anybody. You're trying to build up more walls. You're trying to build this wall thicker and higher so that you feel better about yourself. Jesus has his harshest words for them. Instead of these things, these markers being a, a demonstration of God's grace and kindness to the world, they become something that insulates. Rather than being a neon sign saying, we're open, come in, it becomes a no trespassing sign. It says, stay out. We're better than you. You don't belong in here. In fact, you hear that in verse 14, where Paul says, that Christ has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between them. Most scholars believe that Paul actually had a literal wall in mind as he's saying it. This is a sign Pastor Bill gave me to borrow. He had it in his office. Sometimes if it's on the door, it's a little bit, I'll tell you what it means so then you know. He doesn't do that, I'm just kidding. Let me tell you what it means first. It makes some sense. This is a sign that was in the temple the temple that Jesus would have walked in, the one that Paul would have walked in. And there was a wall about four and a half feet high, like some of you have in your backyards maybe, you know, just about four and a half feet high. And it was to keep the Gentiles out. Here's what this sign says. I'm not even going to try and read it. I'm just going to tell you what I was told it says. <laughs> not that good. <laughs> it says, no strangers may cross this fence. And whoever does is to blame for their own death. Oh, come on in, right? 
No trespassing, no trespassing sign if there ever was one. And these were placed along this wall. No trespassing. No trespassing. No trespassing. Stay out. You don't belong. You see, all of these things that were designed to be bringing, to be bringing people in became a stay out. You could hear this in this passage. If you kind of work your way down through this with me. Verse 11, Therefore remember that you formerly who are Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcised, so pardon my, my graphicness, but the word literally is foreskin. It's a derogatory term that was used to describe the Gentiles. You icky people, you're not welcome in here by those who call themselves the circumcision. But Paul pauses and goes, by the way, this has never been about what ethnic tribe you belong to. Paul actually says in the book of Romans, he says that, that circumcision, that a, a person is not a Jew who is outwardly circumcised, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical, but a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code, or in this case in, in Ephesians 2, not which is done by human hands. He's pushing beyond just this Jew and Gentile distinction. He's acknowledging that there were people, regardless of what country you were born and regardless of what tribe you belonged to, that actually every single human was born in this condition. Look at verse 12. Remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, separate from the Messiah, excluded from citizenship in Israel, the true Israel, the people of God. You were excluded from the people of God. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in this world. You were on the outside. Some of the best words in all the Bible start this way. But now. But God, as we saw last week. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations, all these things that were meant to, that were being used, excuse me, to keep people away. Jesus says, I've destroyed them. I've destroyed them. They don't exist anymore. You can see the theme throughout the entire passage. If you just go through with a highlighter or a pen and look at all the places where two become one, where Jesus is doing something, he's taking those who were far away and those who were near and he's bringing them into one family, regardless of Jew, Gentile, because he wants to bring peace. In fact, that's what he's saying he has brought. His purpose is to create in himself one new humanity, verse 15, out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Now, interestingly enough here, we as Westerners, the majority of us, I'm just going to assume are Westerners here. It's kind of the predominant culture that we are in, and if not, you are in a Western culture where individualism is key. 
where we think it's all about just me and Jesus. Just me and Jesus. As long as we're good, we're good. The problem is that's not how the Bible treats it. Yes, there is personal responsibility, but this is not an individual thing. In fact, all of the, this is where we were talking as a team earlier this week, and there needs to be a, a, a Texas version to the Bible, because these are all y'alls. This isn't you, this is y'all. We're addressed as a corporate group. You all were away from God, apart from Him, but you have been brought near. We can't ever just take this idea of me and Jesus and think that's the whole point. You have been placed into a body. You have been placed and brought into a community. We'll see them, those ideas later, 19 and following. Jesus was asked in Mark chapter 12, he's asked, what's the most important command? You probably all know this. And he answers, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is like it, love, the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. But then he follows it and says, on this commandment, singular, which one? In fact, he, he always talks in such a way that your love for God and your love for your neighbor, for your brother and sister they're so one you can't separate them. Which is why, again, what Paul is trying to say is if you look at what Christ has done, he has brought peace between you and God. And if he has brought peace between you and God, then consequently he has brought peace between you and everyone else. I don't think it takes a whole lot of work. I think you're already tracking with me in the fact that this may not for us be about Jew and Gentile. But we've got plenty of other things that are our own walls of hostility between us and a brother or sister. Hostility. Same word as enmity. It's not a word we use often, but you can hear the word enemies in it, right? between someone who votes differently, someone who vaccinates or doesn't. We find secondary theological issues. We have different ideologies or worldview perspectives. And man, there is something in us that just wants to build walls, isn't there? Here's the reality. If Christ has broken down the wall of hostility between something as foundational as Jew and Gentile, then he has broken down every other wall that you and I might try to build. And if he has broken down that wall, then who are you and who am I to try to build that up again? Why would we take that pile of rubble and try to stack it up? And the answer is because James actually says this. Why do we fight? Why do we have these arguments? It's all rooted in fear. Here's what I mean by that. There is one of two ways that hostility comes out of. One is this fear of our insecurity inside of ourselves that says, I have to be right, but I'm not right. I, I'm insecure. I, I, uh, I don't want to be exposed as not having the whole world together, so I'm going to put on a front that I've got it. And when someone challenges that, I have to overcompensate and swing an attack in hostility because I can't actually let them see that I'm 
questioning some of the things that I'm saying, and I'm, I'm not really as confident as I am. Or second, we're afraid of losing something that we love so dearly. Sometimes that hostility comes out in words of aggression. Some of us are just a little more uh, smooth-tongued with our aggression. We call that passive-aggressive because we know it's not really socially acceptable to be too aggressive, so we just slip it in passively. It's got just as much bite. It's got just as much intention. Some of us, our version of hostility is just to walk away. And I'm going to wall them off. I'm going to keep them out. And it's our own version of canceling. And I'm not talking about what we like to say the media is doing, and quite honestly, it happens. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't give a rip what the media is doing. Because if that media is driven and is under the control and the power of the prince of the air of the darkness, what would you expect? What I am concerned with is our canceling. Peter says that judgment starts in the house of God. And every single one of us has to take a moment and look inside and say, Jesus, I'm doing that very same thing. The thing that you have destroyed, I'm trying to rebuild that wall because I am scared. Because I'm scared I'm going to lose something that I love. I'm scared I'm not going to be in control. Here is the hope that is found in this passage. Christ has brought peace. Jin just mentioned a minute ago when he was praying, biblical peace is not just, phew, nobody's arguing at the moment. It's not absence of conflict. It is true wholeness, completeness. It's the thing that I pray for my kids every morning when they go to school. Like, Lord, help them know your peace, that they aren't lacking anything, that they don't need to make up anything. There's nothing in them that they are lacking in you. They've got it all. It's the thing I pray for us as a church. What would happen if I actually was confident in the peace, the wholeness that Christ has brought? That I don't have to prove you wrong. I don't even have to be right. I don't have to be hostile towards you. I can have disagreements on how we handle things. We can talk about those differences. Please do. But hostility has no place in the people of God. We are not enemies. We are not at enmity with one another. Why? Because, look at verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Because Jesus looked at you and you and you and you and said, I want you. Come in. I'm breaking down the wall so there is nothing separating you from me. That's where he starts. God does the work first. In the book of Luke, it tells us the story that as Jesus is hanging on the cross, as he gives up his spirit and he pours out his last breath, what happens to the veil in the temple that separated God from man? What happens? It tore from the top down. Bottom didn't rip it getting up to God. God ripped it top down saying, there is no barrier between you and me, Jew, Gentile, Republican. I don't care. There is no wall between you and me anymore, God says. 
And when he looks at somebody, a Jew, and says, come in, be with me. And he looks at a Gentile and he says, hey, you, come in and be with me. Oh, boy, look what's happening now. As they're both coming in, they can't help but be reconciled to one another. When the God of the universe invites you and someone that you think very differently than in to do what? Verse 19, be fellow citizens, members of God's household. When they're God's child by grace through faith and you are God's child by grace through faith, then guess what you now are? You're now family. You're not enemies. There is peace. He has made you whole. He has reformed your entire identity. You are complete. You don't have to be afraid of losing something that you cannot lose. Nothing can take you from the Father's hand. You don't have to be afraid of losing, which means there is absolutely no reason for hostility. In fact, I love the way that this passage talks about it. Verse 16 says, In one body to reconcile both of them to God, Jew, Gentile, and any other thing that we find hostility over. He has put to death their hostility. It's active. Christ has killed your hostility. Stop doing CPR on it. As a result, he has joined you together. And he has done what no sports team can ever do, what no citizenship in an earthly country can do, what no common thing on earth can do. It takes a supernatural act of God that only he can do, which is to take a group of people as different as we are, reshape our identity so foundationally, complete us inside so we are not lacking anything, and making us one. But here's the good news. Look at verse 21 with me. In him, in Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Do you hear how those words are not totally completed yet? The reality is there is peace. There is unity in Jesus. And we're not done yet, friends. In fact, in chapter 4 of Ephesians, we're going to be told to work to maintain the unity that Christ has already won. And that's the direction. We're slowly starting to take this turn in the book of Ephesians, and we'll be for the rest of the fall, of really sitting in on what does it mean for us to be one, to live as one, to have all our differences, to have the different ways in which we see the world, our different opinions, and still be one. And the foundation is that in Christ, there is peace, there is wholeness for you. And hostility has been murdered. That the walls have been broken down so that now when we talk, we don't talk as enemies, toe in the line. We wrestle together with the implications of the gospel, absolutely. But it changes every bit of how we think about the other person. It changes about how we talk about the other person behind their back or the groups of people. 
It changes how we talk or how we even think. It causes us to be humble. It makes us listen. Why? Because if you look around, these aren't your enemies. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And oh, that Shelton would be known for our love in the face of differences. That we would not be known as the church that builds up walls. But we would be a church not just for our sake, not just for ourselves, not just for me, but a church that looks to maintain this unity that Christ has already won. Which is why we have to go to communion. Because in communion, I want you just to imagine this for me as you grab the elements. Hopefully you grab them on the way in. I want you to imagine that there is a giant table in this room. A table that extends. It's already broken through the walls and it's circulating the globe. And it's a table that has a feast on it. And on this table, right in the middle is someone who is inviting you to this table, to the party. And it's not me. I am not inviting you to the table. God has. This is a table for all who are trusting in Christ by faith, who are looking to Jesus for their hope, for their peace, to be reconciled with God. But as you look around this table, actually look around the room for a second. Because these people are there too. And if you've been invited by the host, by the king of the universe to sit at this table, and so have they, so has she, so has he. If they have been called to that table, that's what this is all about. This is a reminder that by the broken body of Christ, by his shed blood, men from every tribe, tongue, nation, worldview, difference of opinion have been brought together into one family. One church. Told you we'd come back to this first command. Remember. Remember. Verse 11, it says, remember. Sorry, verse 12. That you were once separated from Christ. Excluded from the people of God. Outside the covenant. With no hope. Without God. But Christ has brought you in. Remember, when often, as often as we do this, we do this in remembrance of the one who has reconciled us to God. And in those moments when you are tempted to rebuild that wall of hostility in your heart or in your life with a brother or sister in Christ, remember. Remember the one who gave his life for you so that you would be brought near. And remember, it's that same grace that invites them as well. See, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks. He said, this is my body which is given for you. And if you are trusting in Jesus this morning as we eat this bread together, 
1 Corinthians 10 says there is one loaf. We're not actually sharing one bread. I don't know if everybody would be that comfortable with it. You get the point. One Savior. We're looking to the same Jesus for our hope and for our peace. And if that's the case, when you look left and right at that table, you're going to see people who are different. Remember. Let's eat in remembrance of our Savior who gave himself for us. And that same night, after he had taken the bread, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood, which is given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Remember that you were once outside, but by the blood of Jesus you have been brought near. And so as we drink, we drink remembering the one who gave himself for us, that we might be reconciled to God, and to one another. Let's drink together. Father, you've said that the world will know that we are your disciples by our love for one another. Jesus, I got to admit, there are so many things, whether it's a, a difference of opinion or someone who's just flat out annoying to me, that I just want to build a wall of hostility, that I just want to keep them out. I just thank you that you didn't decide to do that with us. I thank you that you came to preach peace to those who were far away. That's me. So that we might be brought near, that we might might experience real peace. God, help us. Help us to be a people who work to maintain the unity that you, Christ, have brought by your blood. We have access to one Father by the same Spirit. Lord, tie us together as a church in such a way that what you have brought together to becoming one, let no man separate. Let nothing come between us. That is going to take a miracle. And the good news is, that's what your resurrection is that you have brought forgiveness and life. Lord, continue building us up together. Make us one. Send us with your blessing so that we might be a kingdom of priests to this world, representing what it's like to be reunited with God, demonstrating that in the way we are with one another. Help us by your grace, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.